Please be seated. This morning we begin a new sermon series. We begin our study of the Gospel of John, so I invite you to open to John chapter 1. Our hope in this series, which will be going on at least during what we'll call normal times, uh, for probably the better part of a couple of years, because we want to dig in uh, and hear what John has to share with us uh, through his writing. But our ultimate aim in our study of this, as in all things, is that we as a church and as individuals would become more deeply and more intimately rooted in Jesus Christ. There's no other reason for us to gather or to teach, and yet in him we find all of the hope and all of the joy that we are looking for and longing for in various ways. This morning our text is John 1. We'll begin our reading uh, in verse 1 through verse 14. It's part of the prologue, which really goes to verse 18. And it is such a powerful piece of poetry that we're actually going to be looking at it for the next three weeks, focusing on different themes each week. And this morning our focus will be on the word that became flesh. Hear the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, the word of the Lord. Let's go to our God prayer that he may speak to us through these words. Our Father, we do come with thanksgiving for the beauty and the power and the majesty of these words, but even more, the power, the beauty, the majesty, and the importance of what they represent. And pray that your spirit would be at work both in our minds to help us to understand and in our hearts that this truth would not puff us up but shape us, that we would be a people that are not so much informed by your word, but formed by it. Lord, be at work as we consider your word in these moments, that we might more and more become like you, and through our lives, our awareness, and our dependence upon you, you might receive joy in the glory that you are due. We pray all this in the name of Christ, who is the word incarnated, sent for us. Amen. 
phenomenal thing took place in Stone Mountain, Georgia. It's been a number of years, but at the time it was in the news all over the country. Pizza Hut had just announced that they were going to do something seemingly unheard of. They were going to add spaghetti to their menu. And in order to make sure that people knew that this new product would be available to them anytime that they could find that little red roof, they started an advertising campaign. They had billboards posted all over the United States. And on the billboard, it simply said Pizza Hut, and it had a fork with spaghetti draped over the fork with tomato sauce dripping off of the spaghetti, and back behind it in little fuzzball was a meatball. Really nothing particularly startling about this, except in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Because the same billboard that was posted all over the country at Stone Mountain, Georgia, motorists saw in the tomato sauce the face of Jesus, outlined in egg noodles. I remember reading that and wondering what kind of meatball first saw that. I was quite sure alcohol was involved. (laughs) But then I became a little more amazed because it's really not surprising, whether it's Stone Mountain or Lookout Mountain or any number of mountains, whether in Georgia or South or anywhere else, that somebody might see something a bit peculiar. But thousands of motorists claimed to see the face of Jesus in that tomato sauce. And people were making treks to Stone Mountain just to gaze upon the Pizza Hut billboard. And as bizarre as that may be, it does tell us something. Or at least it reminds me something. It tells me that there are many people that are so hungry for a substantive spirituality because they recognize an emptiness within themselves. The mathematician philosopher Blaise Pascal is credited as having said this, there is a God-shaped vacuum inside every man that cannot be satisfied by anything but God. And that's true. Now, for the sake of accuracy, and especially if we have any philosophy majors, Professor Christoph Kerr, philosophy professor, was in the first service, I need to acknowledge that that statement actually Pascal never said. It's kind of a reduced version of something that he did say, consistent with what he said, but he actually never uttered those words. But I think we will all agree, and I got Chris to agree, this is what Pascal would have said had he been on Twitter, because it fits in, it's a lot shorter. (laughs) And whether he said it or not, it is still a true statement. Every human being has an emptiness inside them. Whether they recognize its shape or not, they want to be filled because we are need to be filled by God. We are created to be filled with God. But the Pizza Hut billboard tells me something else. It's not only that we have this need to be filled with a substantive spirituality, but it's a reminder to me that many people are filling themselves on spiritual junk food. Whether it's gazing bizarrely at a billboard or whether it is spending your time and your money going to movies and buying books to talk about experiences of life after death that can't be verified, validated one way or the other. Or whether even within 
exploring different aspects of things that are presented by within the Christian faith that we shift our focus to things that should be on the periphery and remove them from that which should be centered. Things like spending your time trying to figure out when the rapture is going to take place as if we can calculate it. And year after year, there's somebody that comes out and declares, this is the day. And they haven't been right yet. And the only reason somebody's going to be right is there's enough quacks out there that every day is probably covered on the calendar. Somebody's going to get the right date, but they don't know because we're told we can't know. Nevertheless, many Christians spend all their time looking and studying the prophecies as if they can figure that out, even though we're told that we can't. It may be that you're studying other kinds of lists, trying to be the best this, the best that, all of which are consistent with the teachings of the Christian faith, and yet they are byproducts, are supposed to be byproducts, not the focus of our faith. Those kinds of things, though they are important, they are the byproducts, they are the periphery. Theologian and writer Michael Horton talks about those kinds of things as being fascinations that lead us from the cross. And when we understand that kind of title and begin to look at the things that occupy our attention, we realize that there's a lot of things that distract us from what we should be focused upon and get us caught up on secondary or even weird things. The reality is that there's only one question that is ultimately foundationally important. And that question is this, can we know God? If there is a God, can we know him? It's only by answering that question that that hole, that vacuum that's within everybody is able to be filled. And John, who is the writer of this gospel, answers that question very directly and says, absolutely, there is a God and absolutely you can know him. And we're told in this passage, we can know God because Jesus himself is God. And that's the first thing that we need to explore. That's what John is telling us in this prologue. We can know God because Jesus is God. And John himself has a unique perspective. Not only was he among the 12 disciples who were followers of Jesus Christ, he was among the first to be followers of Jesus Christ. Having been a disciple of John the Baptist, he was one of the first ones. He was there when John the Baptist pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And he and a couple of his friends went and followed and asked bizarre questions in order, just kind of awkward. Have you ever read the account of the awkwardness in that relational dynamic? But he was one of the ones who was following Jesus and became one of the first followers and then recruited others to be followers of Jesus Christ. And even among the 12, as you read all of the Gospels, you realize that there was somewhat of an inner circle uh, from those who were the followers of Christ that consisted of three. And John was one of the three of the disciples that were closest to, to Jesus. And so he has an interesting perspective from there. Even more so about John is... Of all of the disciples, when Jesus began to approach the time of the crucifixion, when he was arrested and everybody else either denied him or fled from him, John is the only one of the twelve who did not run and did not deny him. In fact, not only was he somewhere nearby at the time of the crucifixion, but Jesus, looking at his mother and then looking at John, said to his mother, John is the one you need to go to now. He gave care of his own mother to this disciple who loved him. And there may have been another reason why that made sense too. Not only because he was the one that was on hand and demonstrated that he had continued to be faithful, but 
Scholars tell us this, is that Mary, Jesus' mother, had a sister named Salome. And Salome had a son named John, and it's this John. And so therefore, being a disciple, being faithful, John had known Jesus longer than most because he grew up as his first cousin. That gives him a unique perspective. But to me, it also gives him an unusual perspective that being his cousin, he now endeavors to make sure that we understand that his cousin is God. I mean, I have cousins I grew up with really close to, and some of them are successful, and they're pretty nice overall. There's nothing particularly special about them. I'd be not trying to convince you that there was. And if you talked with them, they might have liked me growing up, but they would give you plenty of reasons why I couldn't possibly be gone, and frankly, may not should be qualified to do what I'm doing now. Uh, so you're never going to meet them. But anyway, that's... Um... <laughs> but with all of this intimacy and knowledge and background and relationship with Jesus, it's fascinating to me that John begins his gospel with these words in the beginning, which is not only connecting us to the book of Genesis, but he's taking us back where it makes sense to begin any story, doesn't it? I mean, where else would you want to begin a story but in the beginning if you want to get all of the facts? Now, all the gospel writers agree on one thing is that Jesus' earthly ministry began in connection with John the Baptist. And two of the gospel writers, Mark and Luke, they begin their stories there. They begin with John the Baptist and then tell Jesus' story from there. You have Mark, who, uh, Matthew, who goes back a little bit further, realizing that he's writing to people who want to know even before that. And so while he acknowledges the importance of John the Baptist and launching the, earthly, uh, the, the visible ministry of Jesus Christ, he begins his story with Abraham, connecting God's work through the people that God had gathered, being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, going back generations, even before Jesus was born. But John doesn't consider that even far enough back. John says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is going back past Abraham, past actually even the beginning of everything that we see and know prior to creation, because what John is saying, and it's important that we recognize this, is in the beginning was means that what was already existed before there was a beginning. Whatever beginning was, whatever caused the beginning, God was already there. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It existed before everything. John goes back to a, a significant point and says, look, when this took place, and it certainly tells us if there was something that was with God before all things and actually is God before all things, it's catching the attention of the people that he's writing to. And he goes on from that and he tells us even more with the words that he chose because the word that he uses for word is the Greek word logos, which is a complex concept with very practical insights for us. I need to explain it, but I hope I do it in a better way than the first service. I think I felt like I got bogged down in some of the philosophy. And when the philosophy professor was the only one that wanted to talk to me after the service, I think that confirmed it. But anyway, that's, uh, so we'll, we'll look at this. But the word logos really has, has 
multiple applications. I don't want to say multiple meanings, but they're all, they're all interrelated. One sense that we, we fully understand is the way we use it in the West is a word has a purpose. It's to express something. We use words to describe so we get some concept. There is a utilitarian purpose behind word. And that is in use here. That is part because in the word that is here, we see God. We can know God because of the word that existed and, and spoke to us. But there's another sense in which the word logos is used, which is more than just the utilitarian purpose of communicating something. It is the essence. It is the nature of something. It is the reality of something beyond and before it is expressed. And so we have sciences and other things where you add the word logi, logi, or however you want to pronounce it. And so there's geology, study of the earth. There's theology, theology, study of God. There's sociology, which is the study of society. And we know that word. We attach the little addendum, and it tells us that it's more than just a description. It is a, a science. It's an understanding. There's something that's behind. And all of that is captured in this single word that John is using here. And his word that he chose was also quite provocative because it was really a direct, I don't want to say confrontation, but encountering of the prevailing philosophies of the day. The Greeks understood and really were quite enamored with the whole idea of the Logos. The philosopher Plato had once said that the earth is a wisp, the shadow of some reality somewhere in the heavens or eternity. In other words, what he was saying is what we see is just a visible representation of an idea or an ideal. And they left it kind of in the philosophical realm. And the Hebrews were aware of the Greek, but they took it a step further. They acknowledged that what we see is an expression of some idea or ideal or thought. But the Hebrew philosophers also said, well, therefore what we see, if there's a thought, there also must be a thinker. And so there, everything we see is an expression of the one who is the creator. All of that stuff, and I hope you were able to follow with some of it. If not, it'll be on the podcast. All of that stuff is wrapped up in this little word that John chose to use. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. And it was so profound that it blew people away. But profound is irrelevant if it isn't practical or isn't true. And so we're still left with the question, okay, John, the great philosopher, who is this word that you're referring to? And even in this very introduction, he gives us a very significant clue. Because in verse 14, he tells us this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled, or as one writer says, pitched his tent among us. And John's testimony is this, and we have seen his glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the fact that John is going to spend the next 20 chapters talking about his cousin, the person, Jesus Christ. 
He's referring to him as the word. The name of that word is Jesus. He's unmistakably declaring that Jesus is the word that he's talking about. And John, years later, having had opportunity to rethink this, even experiencing suffering for being one who was a follower of his cousin and one who had the audacity to declare that Jesus is the word, Jesus is God, who was there before there was a beginning, Toward the end of his life, while he's in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and he's writing to those who are followers of the way, John has a vision of the return of Jesus, and here's what he says. Speaking of the vision, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The return of the promised Messiah is the Word. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. Whether it's in the prologue of his gospel or whether it's in the vision of the establishment of the kingdom that is to be fully yet to co- is fully yet to come, John unmistakably is saying that the word that was in the beginning that was with God and that is God and that came and made his dwelling among us is none other than Jesus Christ. As we look at this passage, we recognize that John is declaring that Jesus is eternally God. Before there was a beginning, he is God. Jesus is essentially God. Whatever it means to be God, John is declaring Jesus is. The word was God. As our catechism describes that, it says that that Jesus shares the same essence, which is deity. Jesus the Son shares with God the Father, and Jesus is equally God. In other words, we're told that there's nothing that hasn't been created by him. All things are created. There is life in him. He is worthy to receive all glory and praise. It's the mystery of the Trinity that is difficult for us to grasp and yet necessary for us to experience our joy. I don't have time to go into great detail of that, but all of these are clearly implied uh, in this poetic prologue to John's account of the life of Jesus. As John is saying, without any question, we can know God because Jesus is God. So if you want to know what God is like, we study Jesus. Or even as we sang, we turn our eyes, our attention to him, When we look fully at him, we begin to understand characteristics, personality, the nature of 
the living and true God who created all things and was before all creation. As important as that is, John gives us another implication that is just as important. As important as for us to know that there is a God and we can know, we can know about that God and we can know accurately about that God because we can study Jesus and know everything there is that has been revealed about God. If all there was to know that there is a God and we could know stuff about him, it would do us no good. But John says, not only can we know there is a God, we can know this God personally because the word became flesh and dwelt among us for a time. There's a British theologian and former missionary named Leslie Newbigin. As he considers these words, he writes this. And these five short words, which includes the word and the word became flesh, um, in these five words, the central mystery, which John will unfold, is stated with absolute simplicity. It lies wholly beyond the power of flesh and blood, of the will of man, to pass from darkness to light, to lay hold of the life of God. We can't do it. It's beyond our ability. But what is impossible has become a fact by a movement in the opposite direction. We want to move towards God. We can't get there, so God has moved to us. God himself, in his creative and revealing being, has become man and pitched a tent among us. Fully God became exactly like us. And the word John uses here for flesh is, was no less startling in that day and maybe in some ways even more startling than the, his choice of the word logos. Because logos was sort of cool, at least among the Greek and the philosophers. They would talk around, they would talk around th uh, you know, the coffee table and, and uh, about their idea, their concept of the logos. And so there was a popularity about it. It was something that was good, something that was noble, beyond our comprehension, but something worthy of pursuit. But here the word became flesh. The word flesh that he uses is the word sarx, which just means our physical being, our body, our flesh, uh, which is more than just skin, but just everything that is matter that, that makes us human. In many philosophies was considered to be evil at best. And so many philosophies, many religions, the essence of religion was to escape this body. And some would go the other way, saying, well, the body, therefore, because it's evil, there's nothing, we're, we're just trapped in this body. What is really important is that which is spiritual. They would give themselves license to do whatever they wanted to in the body, as if the body and the spirit were somehow detached. But in most philosophies and religions, anything about our physical bodies was considered to be evil. And sadly, that somehow made its way into much of Christian teaching and understanding, although it's nowhere to be understood in the scriptures. God made us after his own image, therefore our bodies are good, our, our bodies are, are glorious. It is the reason that we should see everyone that is created after the image of God as having value and inherent value. It's the reason that Evangelism that does not take into consideration the whole man, physical as well as spiritual, is not consistent with the teachings of the scripture. It is not appropriate for us to assume, as some in generations past have, is we're just trying to save the soul. The bodies can go rot in the ground. 
God made us and we are in totality and he made us good. And the fact that Jesus actually assumed this body is the evidence and the testimony that we, our physical being, is not evil. Now, we are broken, corrupt, and we have defaced it and you know, vandalized. But nevertheless, the essence of humanity and of our bodies is good. Because otherwise, if Jesus came into the body and became like us in every way except for, for sin, that would mean that he had become the embodiment of evil. Logically speaking, the body itself is not evil. We must understand that because it has major implications for how we relate to one another, to the world that is around us, and even think about ourselves and the way that our sin is enacted. We get much more understanding when we understand this. But John is saying that Jesus took on our flesh and he became like us. He became fully man. At the same time, John is clear in his writing here in the Greek that he had not given up any aspect of being God. He is fully God and fully man. And there's a sense in which that seems just to be one of those details that theologians press and it really doesn't matter. But the practical implication is if he wasn't God, if he wasn't God when he became in the flesh, then he wasn't ever God. And yet if he wasn't man, he was not a reliable substitute for us to benefit from. The theological term is hypostatic union. I offer that so that you can work it into a conversation sometime this week. It definitely raises eyebrows. Whether you remember the term or not, the concept is vitally important. We need to understand that Jesus was not some mixture of God and man. He was fully man, fully God. Whatever it means to be God, whatever it means to be man, he was both at the same time dwelling within that body that he became like us. And we find our identity, we find our dignity, we find our value in the fact that the word became flesh. He loved us and became like us in every way except without sin, in order that he would be able to give himself to become our sacrifice. And so we are able to know God, and we are able to know him intimately because Jesus became like us. We're not just talking about stuff, the, the logos of ideas. We are recognizing that what John is declaring to us is that the word that he prophesies that was from the beginning is not a philosophy, but it is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And we're able to know him accurately. We're able to know him personally. And because he came for us, we are able to know him intimately. And we see that even in John's word here as well. Because he says, we have beheld his glory. In other words, he's saying, they didn't just know stuff. And it's not just that he didn't come. But we are able to see. We interacted. We had some benefit of the relationship that we have with him. It's clear there is a relationship even in, in, in the way that he uses the word beheld. And he elaborates this on the epistle that he writes because in 1 John 1, John writes this, and this is where it's beneficial for us. That which was from the beginning, who, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. And he's talking about the we there is, is the, all the apostles, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And the reason that that is significant is that John is not only explaining to us so that we have knowledge and some understanding. There is a God, this is what God looks like, this is what God is like, this is what God has done on our behalf. And so that we know stuff and therefore are expressing the here, the, our, our belief in the logos of life as if it's a concept. John says, I'm proclaiming this to you. That which I have 
physically experienced, touched, we're declaring this to you so that you too can believe and have the benefit and the relationship with him. That's the whole purpose of John writing in the epistle and really was simply an elaboration of what he's writing here in the prologue of his gospel. And I was helped in understanding this by the writings of an old Puritan named John Owen. Listen to what Owen says that helps us in our understanding. John writes not only of himself, but of his fellow apostles. Also, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what is this glory of Christ which they saw, and how did they see it? It was not the glory of Christ's outward condition, for he had no earthly glory or grandeur. Neither was it the eternal, essential glory of his divine nature, that is, that he means. For this no man can see while in this world. What the apostles witness was the glory of grace and truth. And how did they see this glory? It was by faith and no other way. And see what John Owen is helping us to see of the Apostle John is that we might be inclined to think, well, they believed because they saw with their eyes. And if I saw with my eyes, then I wouldn't doubt, and I wouldn't find myself anxious, and I wouldn't find, my faith would be really strong if I saw with my eyes. But what Owen is helping us to see, that John is telling us, is this. He doesn't believe because he sees with his eyes, but he sees because he believed. And he testifies to us what he had tangibly experienced, telling us we don't need to experience that. We just need to believe his testimony of what he and others had physically experienced. And by believing, we also will behold. We will see. We will see that same grace, that same truth truth, that same majesty, the full character that is on display of the living and true God in the person of Jesus Christ. It comes by faith alone, but by that faith, every benefit comes. John is saying very clearly, Jesus has come. Jesus is the word. Jesus is our hope. He is the object that we are longing for. And I'm going to wrap up with this simply because it's still complex, but I do want to say this. There is a practical aspect for us in our spirituality that we can glean from all of this. In one sense, it's difficult to say, and I wrestled all week with, okay, where are we in this? And I had to remind myself of the basic principle of the Bible. It's not about us. And so there is a sense we are not in this. But every benefit, every hope that we have, the foundation is here as it's pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ. And I said a moment ago, our hope is not found in a philosophy or in a way of life, but in a person. And John's clear about it because he says, in him is life. In other words, it's by the relationship that we have that comes by faith and believing in what John saw physically, but we get the same benefits simply by believing all that is revealed and is recorded. And that is something that is significant for Christianity. Because in every other religion on the face of the earth, in every other philosophy, 
It exists whether the participants that are depicted in the story are real or not. I remember reading of a man who was doing an interview, was a a Christian scholar doing an interview, uh, really about something related to this subject, and he spoke with an Islamic imam. He asked him, would Islam stand, would Islam still be intact if it could be proven that Muhammad never existed? At first, the imam was offended and repeated this line, Muhammad is God's prophet, is Allah's prophet, and and there was clear miscommunication there, and he finally was able to say, look, I'm not trying to suggest Muhammad never existed. I'm just asking, could Allah have picked another prophet, communicated the same stuff, and the essence of Islam would stand fully intact as it is right now? And the imam acknowledged, yes, that Muhammad was merely a prophet, and that Allah could have used anyone. The essence of Islam is the code of ethics that it, is, that it communicates, and anybody could have been chosen to communicate that. The same is true whether it's Hinduism, anything else, Buddhism, if, they, if the, any of the gods or the deities, if the people that were presenting them, nothing falls apart based on the historic veracity of the people that are the heroes of those faiths. Because every one of them is a philosophy that leads to an ethic and a way of life. And that's what people consider important. Christianity is vastly different. It is not the philosophy, though we get confused because there are people that are proclaiming to you, dumbing down the reality of what John is clearly presenting here and teaching as if it only matters the philosophy. Now you have some that are clearly liberal and would say, It doesn't matter. I mean, some of your classes, some of the people that are in some churches will say, it doesn't matter whether Jesus was real. It's what he taught. It's the ethic that is contained in the Bible that is beautiful. And it is beautiful, but that's wrong. John is saying the person matters. There are others others who are far more subtle and maybe confused and well-intended that will tell you that the essence of Christianity is found in the red letters. The only thing that matters is whether we do what Jesus said that we should do. And while that is important and we are called to do that, John says the life is found in him, not from him. And Christianity, unlike anything else, sinks or swims on the historical veracity of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every other religion can continue on, but if it can be proven somehow that Jesus was never born, never died, or was never risen from the, from the dead, then don't come back next Sunday because it's a waste of time. Our hope is not found in a way, but in the way, the truth, and the life, which is found in the person of Jesus Christ, who as describing himself says, this is I am. It's a physical being. The person of Jesus Christ, as we relate to him and all that he has done, that's where our hope is found, to know God, to be reconciled to God, to walk with God, and then to be empowered to become more like God. Not in deity, but in the character with which he has created us. John tells us, the word became flesh, dwelt with us, and in him we have the life that feeds the whole that we have And by studying him, walking in him, learning him, relating to him, we feel that emptiness. Or rather, God does. Let me pray. 
Father, I do pray with thanksgiving for the glory of Christ revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Bless us with understanding. Father, forgive me if in my bumbling philosophy people were confused. But may we see Jesus beautifully, powerfully presented in this poetic prologue and therefore be changed. To you all praise and glory through Christ from your church. Amen.